The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. So Acts chapter 19, we're going to pick up where we left off yesterday, um, and um, starting in verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business from the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in particularly the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made with human hands are no gods at all. And there's a danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. And when they heard this, they were furious and began to shout, Great is Artemis of, of the Ephesians! And soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and the Amen, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him in. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was, was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, and some were shouting another, and some of the people didn't even know what they were there, why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front. Good to be Alexander. And they shouted instructions to him, and he motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized that he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all of the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed our temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. And then after he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. One of the things that I was really taken back by by starting in Acts 19 is the fact that 
if we truly understand Paul's teaching, which is Ephesians. So this is setting us up because everything we're about ready to study for the next seven days is going to be most likely what Paul was teaching the people here. And so if he spent nearly three years here teaching them about what we are going to be talking about for these next few days, then what is the response in a city when the people put into practice what they've been taught? So by us starting out last night, um, looking at the first part of Ephesians 19 which I want to encourage you, we need to read Ephesians as often as we can during this week. I started out by saying that I believe that one of the questions that Ephesians answers for us very clearly is what is the church supposed to do? And the other question that I feel like Ephesians answers very clearly is what does Jesus then expect of me if I'm a part of the church? And then the book obviously addresses everything. I just listed several theological things for you. Last night we talked about the fact that the first half of Ephesians is all about theology, and the second half of Ephesians is all about putting that theology into practice. So I love that there's a transition for that for us. And when we looked back at Acts 19 last night, and we were looking at what Paul's strategy was to going into a mega power city, Ephesus was a major city in this time period. It was one of the most influential cities. It was a source of trade. It had trade power. It had governmental power. It was a power in the artistic community. It was a power in the spiritual community. It was one of those cities, much like New York, that by, like the phrase goes, if New York gets it, everybody else has it six months later, right? That's the influence of a great city like that. Ephesus was that same thing. And so what did Paul do in order to impact in three years a riot? Within three years, everyone in the city was shouting, the rich, the poor, the elite, the people that had no education. Everyone that was in Ephesus was standing around around this theater screaming at the top of their lungs, and some of them had no idea why they were doing it. Something was going on. And when we looked last night, as a reminder, Paul went into the synagogue first to amongst the Jews and identified 12 disciples, and he poured into them an insane amount of time he spent with them. And then that number grew. And in the synagogue, the other Jews started to pressure him. And so rather than spending his whole time of discipleship arguing with people that didn't believe, he gathered up his disciples and went to the hall of Tyrannius and began to teach them. And then the numbers started to expand. So he, as an example, set an, an, an incredible amount of time with those people that were willing to listen. And willing to be taught all about Jesus and the Holy Spirit, he put his hands on them, the Holy Spirit fell on them, and they hadn't really been taught anything since John the Baptist's baptism of them, which is insane what happened. So he taught them incredible amounts of things about God. He talked to them about how that belief then impacts their social sector. And we ended last night with all of these um, leaders coming and burning scrolls to other gods totaling 50,000 drachma, which would be millions of dollars in our economy today. And now a riot takes place because when people are hit in their wallet, you get a response. 
It happens in the church a lot of times. I grew up in churches where the pastors sometimes pass the offering plate more than once, and sometimes that rubbed people the wrong way. I was one of them, right? And so there's other places where you go where people, um, if it hits the investment or something happens and your business goes down, that's when people say something. But until it hits the wallet, people really don't respond. And Demetrius in this passage of Scripture is no different. So what we have here is that Paul has been laboring for three years in Ephesus, and it's all climaxing at the end of Acts 19. Luke, the writer of Acts, for your benefit, he has crammed 48 years of church history into his book. A lot of people read Acts like it was just the course of a couple of years of church history. But when you go from Acts 1 to the end, I think it's Acts 29 or Acts 28, um, you find that that's 48 years approximately of church history from Jesus' ascension until the ending of the book of Acts. And so now we're in Acts 19 and Acts a little bit of Acts chapter 20, and it's all about the things Paul did and the, and the emotional plea he made with the elders in Ephesus and was commissioning them to go. So why did Paul stay so long in Ephesus where other cities he stayed for a few days, he stayed for a few months, but this is the longest stay that we know of on Paul's missionary journey besides the times that he was imprisoned and he had no choice about where he was going. What we find is a clue to this in the letter he wrote to the Corinthian church. At the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 8, he says this, I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost. Listen to this, because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. To be honest with you, I, I'm, I, I've been doing a lot of evaluating for like the last 10 years of our life here in Baltimore, just trying to be a part of getting the gallery going. And if we could just end the sentence with, because a great door of effective ministry was open to us, I would love that. But here is the real truth, is when you are talking about Jesus, people oppose you. Sometimes there are people in the church because we have bad theology and people clash over theology. That's why there's so many denominations. And so now we're finding Paul was finding that the door in Ephesus was worth the opposition. So much so that when this riot is taking place, what is Paul doing? Let me in there. Let me in there. He's saying, let me in there. And the guy's like, no, Paul, you can't go in there. And then other guys are sending him messages to go in there. But there's like 12,000 or 20,000 people cramming into this theater. And he's like, I can talk to all of them at one time about Jesus. Man, what kind of enthusiasm, what kind of level of belief did Paul have? But we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But Paul is aware that there's a window. I'm asking us tonight as a matter of prayer, and you can write this in your journal. Where's God opened a window for you? And is the opposition keeping you from walking into it? What is God asking of you? What is he, where is he showing you a fruitful place? It might be one person's life. It might be a, a place of work. It might be a community. It might be a prison system. It might be wherever it might be. But where is God opening up a window of opportunity for you? And what opposition is keeping you from going after it? So what is actually happening here in Acts 19? The word I want us to write down is disruption. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. When people are taught about him and people understand why he came, it disrupts the culture of this world. 
it doesn't matter who's in charge. It doesn't matter what city is on the planet. If people are worshiping Jesus Christ and understand him fully, everything about that culture is most likely going to be flipped upside down because the majority of our cultures we talked about last night is controlled by spiritual forces that Jesus came to die for to free us from. Because there are enemies at work, and whether you believe in the evil one or not, Jesus believed in it, so I believe in it. Um, There is a powerful force at work in the world that is seeking to destroy us, and a lot of those forces are city-based. And I I challenge you to read. We didn't have time last night, but go into Revelations and look at the seven churches talked about. Each one of them had different demons, and each one of them were told different ways of addressing those demons. And so our city has its own demons. We have all kinds of demons of addiction and violence. And people are willing to murder and kill. And um, there's so much about our city that there are things that we need to fight against. So there's a word that I want us to understand is when our church, if our church is being the church that Paul talked about, and if our church is being the church that Paul instructed a group of people and they bought into his theology, they bought into his practice, and, and, the whole, and obviously Jesus was majorly with Paul in the power of the Holy Spirit. The handkerchiefs and the aprons he was wearing were healing people. If that's not sign enough, so much was going on to confirm the work of Paul. And when the people began to follow after Jesus, it disrupted things. But one of the things that I think is important for us to understand is, is that people weren't intentionally causing a disruption. But we're going to talk about that in just a moment. In verse 23, it says, About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. And the word way is capitalized. If you look at Mark's gospel, Mark all throughout his gospel says that they were on their way to Jerusalem. If you ever mapped the gospel of Mark, they did not go on the way to Jerusalem. That's spiritual language. It's, it's, it's biblical. It's like a, um, a word picture, so to speak. Because if you map Mark's gospel, you have Jesus going this way, going this way, going this way, going this way, going way over here, coming back, going way over there, coming back. And he's just circling around Jerusalem. He doesn't get to Jerusalem until the very end. And so if it's a way, it's a really weird way. But what he's talking about is, is when we understand what it's like to be like Christ, we're on the way. And so these people were on the way because they were understanding what it looked like to be like Christ. So where does this riot start? This riot starts because Demetrius started looking at his bank accounts over the last three years and realized every year it was on a decline. People weren't selling as many idols anymore. People weren't buying the extra peripheral things or there weren't people that were coming to this Artemis temple for the annual festival as much as they once were. And, and let me just pause here just for a minute. I would encourage you to go now and look up things about the temple in Artemis. And most of the tourism around the temple and the guides that talk about the temple in Artemis talk about it as look at what the Christians took apart. They talk about it as, look at what happened in the sense that this once was worship, but once Christianity took over, people stopped worshiping here. You can go today and most of the guides walk you through it, walk you through it as a biblical perspective. But this guy, Demetrius, brings up a complaint because people are disrupting where his bottom line is coming from. But somewhere in his research, he realized that Paul was the one. I mean, 
obviously he was losing large amounts of, of money, and he began to summarize and look at all the things that were happening. He traced it back to this hall where Paul was teaching everybody, and so he went straight after Paul and, and began to accuse him. What on earth is Paul teaching that is disrupting one of the seven wonders of the world? So in verse 26, let me go back and read this for us. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and and in practicality the whole province of Asia. He says that the God made with human hands are no God at all. And that's that's what Paul said on Mars Hill in Acts 17. All the gods around, he's like, you know what? None of those are gods. Actually, you have a God... You have a statue to an unknown God? Let me talk to you about that God because that's the one that's the Savior of the world. And by the way, he won't fit in that statue. Paul was very strong in the fact that there was an exclusive claim around Jesus. And this is the problem. I don't think it was necessarily always just the money side. I I really hit that hard at the beginning. I believe in Ephesus, that was a very spiritual city. One of the things that started to cause an uproar amongst some of them, and they used it as an excuse to get the focus off of the money. But anytime anybody makes an exclusive claim about Jesus, people are offended. Everybody wants everybody's faith or religion to get them to God's love. But Paul, and obviously Christ himself, and even when John, the disciple that walked around Jesus over and over again, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, have, have said very clearly that there is no other way. And there is never a moment in Paul's teaching where he waters that down. He doesn't want to be accepted by the city, so he begins to go around saying, well, let me just dial back my Christianity a little bit. Let me dial back my my faith in Christ. Let me dial it back because I want them to like me. I want them to to be okay with the God that I have. Um, And so I'm just going to stop. I'm not going to be quite as strong in what I know to be true about Jesus. Nowhere in human history has anybody ever done that, and it turned out to be a good thing. There's actually um, a quote by G.K. Chesterton that I came across, and I want to read it to you. Those that marry the spirit of the age will find themselves widowed in the next. I mean, it was really powerful when I began to think about that. Those that are married, that marry the spirit of the age will find themselves widowed in the next. And what I mean by that in this particular context is that when you and I begin to make exceptions for the truth of Jesus Christ and we marry that, the future is going to be really different for us. It's a really slippery slope in regards to what we're thinking and what we're valuing. But the thing I love about what's happening here is that this exclusive claim was because Paul loved them deeply. Why does Paul say to them and exclusively in a city that has all these false gods um, that Jesus is the only way? Second Corinthians 5 addresses this almost directly. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that, every, that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. Since we know what it means to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. What we are, what, what we are is a plain, excuse me, what we are is plain to God. And I hope that it is plain to your conscience. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is, sorry, I, I, I put that in there twice. That's fun. That's, it was meant to be said twice. 
for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Paul's motivation and the reason why he was so passionate is because he knew that everyone would be seeing Jesus at some point. That there was going to be a time that everybody was going to have to look at Jesus face to face. And he wanted them to be able to look at Jesus face to face prepared. And because he believed that and because it was so important to him, he didn't have a problem in love saying to them, there is no other name under heaven. The thing is about, and I was talking to somebody earlier today that came by here um, and we had a brief conversation. I don't want to say too much because I don't want you to know who it was. And sometimes I, I do that. Um, but really what it boiled down to is this. Doubt is in fashion in America. Like, it is, it, is, it is the thing now. Like, nobody wants to believe anything anymore. Um, it can be scientific, you know, global warming. Some people are like, ah, and they get in their big SUV, right? <laughs> um, it's... Uh, sorry, that was a side joke. Rachel got it. Um, but, uh, sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Um, but doubt is in fashion. Doubt is something where everybody's like, ah, you know what, Let's, if it's good for you, it's good for you. And so certainty and confidence in things, um, a lot of people, and so that's going to be the biggest challenges for me as a minister and our elders in our church, is that, we are, we're not only confident in Jesus, we're certain about Christ. And how we talk about Jesus really shows whether or not we are doubtful or we're certain. Now, there's so many ways, ways the illustrations could go, because I want you guys to understand, I'm okay with us in seasons of doubt. Um, it, it's totally all right. We're going to talk a little bit about the realization of our salvation in Christ tomorrow night. But the problem is, is that so many of us want it to be okay that we live in perpetual doubt. Jesus didn't die so that we can be every day like, wow, this world screwed up. Why are we even here? God doesn't want us to walk around and, and be like, it's pointless for me to be alive. Jesus died for a reason. And that reason brings life to us, even in the midst of opposition. And so if we begin to understand that, and I believe that's why Paul wrote the letter that he did to the church in Ephesus, is because he wanted them to be told exactly what it looked like to be a disciple so that they could face opposition and keep joy in their heart. Um, as you go on through this, I love um, the ending of this. It says, um, and when they arrived, he said to them, you know um, how I live. Excuse me. This is now in Acts chapter 20, verses 18, 19, and 31. It says, when they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. He's talking to the elders in Ephesus. For the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears. So when he's talking about Jesus to these people, and he's teaching them about Jesus, he isn't angrily grabbing them. He's weeping over their condition and the reality of what Jesus has done for them. So Paul's awareness of Christ probably challenges our awareness of Christ. Because when was the last time in the midst of a group of people we just wept because we were so moved by God's Spirit with love towards them that we wanted them to know Christ? 
Paul was tender-hearted. He sounds like a, a rhino wanting to just run into a china shop by running and run into the crowd. But when you hear his words to these elders, he's saying to them, I came to you with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning you, warning each of you night and day with tears. Imagine how many sermons he preached in three years that they were pretty much gathering together every day. And how many tears did Paul cry? Probably enough to fill a baptism tank. But he was weeping over them. And so what is the outcome of people being taught with a humility and a tenderness and a weeping? That recipe, what does it bring? Well, let me tell you what it brings. It disturbs a city. It brings a disruption to everything that's happening in an area. So for us, if we really do learn to embrace what Paul is saying and, and it means something to us and it's not just a sermon, it just isn't knowledge and it isn't just a, a thing. Like, like every time I preach, most of the time I have at least one, if not three of my family members in the room. And so every time I talk about something, I'm immediately held accountable because they know whether or not it's true or not. If what I'm saying I believe, let alone I live. And so what I'm saying to us here tonight is the outcome of us believing what Paul's about to say to us, if we look at this story, is that Baltimore is going to be disrupted. The things that are holding people back, are, will be, they'll be freed from. The things that are troubling people, they'll be set free from. And when the crowd heard about everything that was happening, they were furious and they cried, and they screamed. But the thing that I think is interesting out of this, and this is one of my challenges to certain churches, and I know that because we're Facebook-living this so that people can listen in and watch from home, um, I know that other churches are going to be watching um, because I, we have partnerships in other places. And I scrolled through some of the people that watched last night and I was shocked we had over 160 people watch in last night um, which blew me away but for the churches that are watching one of the things that I realized in this story is when people um, are confused and they're defensive and they're angry what do they do they shout each other down and so the Jewish people were trying to explain their point because they wanted to separate themselves from Paul because he was a Jew and so they were sending instructions to Alexander how to make him not a Jew so that they wouldn't be tied into this massive conspiracy to um, discredit the temple of Artemis. And in the process of that, the Greeks then put up an ethnic wall and like, wait a minute, you're Jewish, you worship a different God. Um, and so we're not even going to listen to you. And so rather than listening to you, we're just going to shout over you. Now, how many times in our city here recently have Christians been shouting over other people at protests? Now, again, there are times for us to stand for justice, but what I'm saying to our church is in three years, they radically changed the climate of the city of Ephesus, so much so that the temple of Artemis does not exist today. People are not going there and worshiping her. They'll take little idols home that look like her as a token that they went to a souvenir shop. 
Now, there probably are a few people worshiping her, but that is not the same. What Paul did in Ephesus changed the culture of that city to this day. And if we're a part of the church, I believe that the same thing can happen to us. But the thing that I want us as a church to do is we've got to stop villainizing people. We've got to stop shouting over people. The example Paul set in Acts 19 is he talked to the people that were willing to have a further conversation. He went on and spent time with those that were already willing to be taught. He didn't waste his time. Now, yes, he wanted to address the crowd in the theater because why? He knew it was a captive audience. He wanted in the power of God's spirit for the, because God had used him to miraculously heal people through aprons and handkerchiefs and all these other signs that accompanied it. He was walking in there full of confidence that God was going to show off in front of all of them. But he wasn't going in there for a fight. He wasn't going in there to tell them that they were wrong or that they were stupid for believing in other gods. He was going to go in and tell them the truth, but he was going to tell them the truth in love. Don't fall into the trap that we ever have a right to angrily evangelize. We don't have a right ever to represent God in anger. Um, I actually have a testimony of some things that I thought about sharing tonight, but I'm just going to say this. I'm really proud of my kids because they had a chance to be around somebody that was angrily evangelizing. And guess what? My kids got angry (laughs) and got called into the principal's office because they were angry over the way that this person was leading them to evangelize. And all it was was an angerly way of evangelizing. And it rubbed my kids the wrong way. And I just couldn't tell you how proud I was of the fact that they were bothered by that and basically wanted to tell them to stay out of our city. Um, But one of the things that we need to understand as we come to the end of Acts chapter 19 is the things that the city clerk reveals. Because this city clerk was sort of like a mayor. Ephesus was privileged. Most of you that know anything about history know that if in Rome, if you cooperated with Rome kindly, they gave you lots of freedom. So if their leadership was respected and you went along with the rules, you could have tons of freedom. But the problem in Jerusalem around Jesus' time is there were zealots and other religious leaders that were attacking Rome. And so Jerusalem was ruled much more heavy-handed. But a city like Ephesus had a ton of freedom. And so this city mayor knew what was going on. And he knew that if a riot broke out and the Caesar's money in the temple was touched, the freedoms that they were enjoying that gave them the opportunity to make extra money and to be able to do the things that the armies were going to come and that the privileges were going to go. And the mayor is stepping into that. And But I love what he says here. Listen to this. He says, the city clerk quieted the crowd and said, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know the city of Ephesus is guarded as a guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and her image, which fell from heaven? So he's going on saying to them, who cares what they say? We have this great Artemis. We've been celebrating her. And it's never, it's in every, and the whole world knows. Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and don't do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have. Now listen to this. Listen to their testimony. They have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. 
If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open. They can press charges. If there is anything further that you want to bring up, you must settle it in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in no danger of being charged with, we are in real danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion. The Christians in the city of Ephesus had an extraordinary reputation. I mean, the city mayor could have very easily walked in and been like, yeah, they've been robbing, they've been stealing, they've been talking bad about us, they've been... No, it was, there, there was nothing that they had done. They, hadn't been, they weren't guilty of any of the things. And it brought me to a verse. My wife helped me find this verse today, which I'm grateful for. But in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, listen to this. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. If we were to go on, I mean, there are so many verses in the New Testament from Philippians 1.27. Philippians 1.27 through 30 in the message version is a phenomenal read. 1 Peter 3.15 through 16 Great read about our hearts revering Christ and always being prepared for an answer, giving people respect with gentleness and kindness, keeping a clear conscience, not speaking maliciously of others and keeping a good behavior so that we're not guilty of slander. First Peter three fifteen through 18, I love what the message version says. That's what Christ did definitely, suffered because of other sins, the righteous one for the unrighteous ones. He went through it all and was put to death and then made alive to bring us to God, and he's saying that as a testimony of how we ought to live. The testimony of us and our church, if we were following the teachings of Paul in Ephesians, is we would be a people that were free from accusations. It breaks my heart right now to scroll through the news feed on social media and continue to see church after church after church after church after church where there's been sexual impropriety in churches. Many of them are against children. Most of them are against women. And I'm just like, where, why, why? the church should be without accusation. There should be no room for it. And the thing I also love about this, they obviously had been making a very clear presentation of the gospel because they were going around saying, well, they are saying that, that God doesn't inhabit any of these statues and none of our temples can hold God. So they've obviously been very clear about who God is and what God is about. I wonder if people would say about our church that we have a clear message. And the other thing that's, that is, comes out of Acts 19 is that if everybody in the region had taken time to listen, obviously they were very compelling. There was something about the way they lived, and there was something about their words that really the Holy Spirit got involved in and began to really draw them in. People were really compelled by it. So it's, it's how they lived, and it was the power of their living. It was the quality of their living. It was the intensity of their commitment to being discipled that the fruit of the Holy Spirit manifested itself in this city as a riot. So how do we pray tonight? A couple of things, and I'm going to read a verse and give you a couple more things. Number one, 
When was the last time you cried over Jesus? When was the last time you actually shared tear, shed tears thinking about what Jesus has done for us? And I'm not talking about watching the Passion of the Christ. That's not fair. <laughs> but when was the last time in thinking about people in your life and the fact that they don't believe in Jesus, that you couldn't hold back your tears? And another question about prayer is maybe you should ask the Father, Father, how strong is my faith? Because when was the last time at home with your family or at work or in your community you heard somebody and you knew a door was open for an opportunity, but your attitude wasn't, let me in there. Your attitude was like, "Ah, maybe somebody else will do it. If we're effective and the Holy Spirit works in the next seven nights, my desire is is that everyone that comes and hears this will have a let me in their mentality where we won't be afraid to identify ourselves with Christ and we'll be confident that we know the truth about Jesus so that we can share it with great respect, great love, great humility, but yet we're not afraid to get in there. Too many times... We're even scared to pray at tables in public anymore, and we don't want to force our faith on other people. But yet, God in his great love for us sent his son to die for us. And so how do we compare that to us being a little bit intimidated by showing our faith in public? Colossians 4, 2 through 6 has been a foundational chapter of our essentials class for a long time. Starting at verse 2, it says this, Devote yourselves to prayer. I'm hoping that we're doing that this week, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly. Now, here's the thing. He's in chains. He's most likely now in chains a couple of decades after Acts 19. So Acts 19 and 20 took place, and then the letter of Ephesians probably arrived a couple of decades later. So he's now an old man chained to a guard, and he's saying, I am, or excuse me, the letter going to the Colossians church. I'm now an old man, and he's sending this to him, and I'm proclaiming as clearly as I should. And then he says to them, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. I don't think shouting people down is acting wise. Now, stepping in front of a bully and taking a punch for somebody else, now that could be wise, right? But not shouting down one. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. The local church, which is what the gallery church is supposed to be, living in the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ, with a good understanding of Jesus Christ, is an extraordinary force. We might not feel like a mega church, but we can have a mega impact. What God can do in us if we think rightly and we believe passionately in our heart and understand fully what God does, and that just mixes in with the awe and the wonder of the Holy Spirit, we could make a serious disruption 
in all the things that are happening in our city. I alluded to it last night. If we as men got serious about discipling men in our church, there would be no need for Baltimore Street between whatever block it is and President Street because there wouldn't be any business. And then the owners would be like, what happened to all the men? Why aren't they coming anymore? Well, you know what? Over there in the building around the corner, they're talking to people about Jesus and they're believing it and therefore they're quitting their actions. What could it look like in places where greed is winning out and our, our, our children in our schools are suffering because they're not getting quality education or quality buildings. I mean, all it takes is for a church to stand up in Jesus' name, and in a very short period of time, an entire disruption can take place. Jesus, actually, if you go back and read the Gospels, Jesus, most of Jesus' ministry was a disruption, and the only time he got a break from disrupting things is when he left the back door of a place to just to get away in the wilderness for a little bit by himself. But he disrupted storms, he disrupted crowds, he disrupted the religious systems, he disrupted the temple, and he totally thwarted the enemy's plans of holding us captive for eternity. So here, here's a couple of questions that I'd like for you to write down um, for prayer. Here's the prayer. Father in heaven, what needs to be disrupted in my life? I'll say that again so you can write it down. Father in heaven, what needs to be disrupted in my life? The next, Father in heaven, what do people say about me? What is my reputation? Father in heaven, what do people say about me? What is my reputation? Father in heaven, is your kingdom coming in and through my life? Father in heaven, is your kingdom coming in and through my life? Father in heaven, give me the courage to live my faith in public. And if you're brave enough in your notes, you can write in quotation marks, let me in there with a little bit of a twang, however you write that so it sounds funny. Let me in there. Father in heaven, give me the courage to live my faith in public. And as last night, we are going to end in where you can just seek prayer individually or in some groups. If you need to be prayed over, um, we can pray for you. You can come see me. If you would like to be prayed over with oil, we can pray for your wellness, want healing. Um, we can do that as well. But here's my prayer for you. As, um, and as, the door, as the room will be open fairly late if you need to stay, um, here's our prayer. Father, would you please make my brothers and sisters so aware of their reputation. Would you help them, Father, and myself included, um, to live our lives free of people being able to say bad things about us other than the fact that they love Jesus 
But may they say things about us that they're kind, they're gentle, they're so humble, they're so considerate, they're so generous. Did you see how generous that person just was? Father, would they also walk away from us saying, well, even though I don't believe, that was the clearest presentation of Jesus I've ever heard. Father, would you give us a clear message of Christ? And Father, would you, through the power of your spirit, make us compelling like the Old Testament prophets that had people literally grabbing a hold of their clothing, saying, take us to the temple of your God. Father, could we, in, 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 as a people, be beacons in the city that people literally just come up to us and say, I don't know why, but I feel like I need to ask you about Jesus. Father, could your spirit be so strong in our city, drawing people to you, that just by us living and doing the things that you've asked us to do, that people feel the freedom, and like, like they can find truth in us, they can find hope in us? Father, we want the church to be a compelling place where people can lay down their old selves, and be renewed into the image of Christ that is such an abundant life. So, Father, we love you, we thank you, and we have your will and way in us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.